Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Museum collections hold an incredible diversity of biological specimens, and even if they've been dead for a while, those specimens still contain DNA. This often overlooked resource has the potential to change the way we see the tree of life, and, as a result, the ways in which we establish modern-day conservation programs. How? Well, we'll find out in this episode, as we hear from the authors behind the recent heredity paper, utilising museomics to trace the complex history and species boundaries in an avian study system of conservation concern. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please both introduce yourselves? Um, Hi, James. First of all, thanks a lot for inviting us to your podcast. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Mario. I'm a PhD student and I'm currently working at the Natural History Museum Berlin. But this paper is related to uh, my degree project, which I did at the Natural History Museum in Stockholm. My work focuses on wild populations and my research interests include genomics, conservation and speciation. Yeah, thanks very much for having us here today. My name is Knut Johnson. I'm an associate professor at the Natural History Museum of Denmark in Copenhagen. And my work revolves around evolution, ecology, island biogeography, and usually with the stars of my show being birds. I'm mostly interested in birds, but sometimes, you know, branch out into other organismal groups. Perfect. Well, I'm really happy to have you both here on the podcast because I'm really excited to talk about this study, which is on museomics, uh, which I might not be pronouncing right. But I don't think many people will be that familiar with this term. So what is your paper broadly about? So in our paper, we're looking at at an avian species group, which originates from Asia. And this species group is of conservation concern because it includes the endangered silver oriole. And there's this previous paper by Knud, which showed that the taxonomy within this complex may be inaccurate. Uh, Of course, this could have serious implications for conservation. So we decided to uh, reevaluate the systematics within this group. And for this, we reconstructed the evolutionary history and we reassessed species boundaries using genetic data. Now, what makes our study somewhat uh, special is that we extracted DNA from museum specimens. And that's where the term museomics comes into play. Uh, in a nutshell, museomics is just the um, use of genomic methods for the study of museum specimens. And I think this term was coined in 2007. So it's uh, a relatively recent field. And this is because it has been challenging to use genetic analysis with museum specimens because the older the samples get, the more degradation patterns they present and the more fragmented their DNA becomes. But thanks to recent advancements in sequencing as well as in bioinformatics, it's becoming increasingly possible to overcome these limitations. So as a result, we see how more and more researchers are integrating uh, museum specimens in their uh, genetic analysis and therefore we see how this term is uh, getting more mainstream. It's popping up more and more in the literature. I'd like to add to that that museum collections worldwide hold thousands if not millions of bird specimens. So, you know, developing these techniques, being able to use the DNA from these specimens is just an enormous resource for all sorts of evolutionary, ecological, conservation-oriented projects. An enormous resource, yeah. 
Mm, definitely. And a very undervalued resource in a lot of cases as well. It's a really interesting study. And I really want to get on to some of the methods you're using, because as you were saying, there's all these challenges. But before we do, I'm not sure if many people will be familiar with the study group you're looking at, the Asian Orioles. So can you just tell us a bit about this clade and why it was you chose to study them? Yeah. So first of all, I, I suppose for the American listeners, there's quite a difference between what we call New World Orioles and then this group here that we call Old World Orioles. So Mario was alluding to the fact that they originated in Asia, but in actual fact, the family of Old World Orioles originated in Australia. So some of the, the deepest or oldest uh, lineages they occur only in Australia and New Guinea. And some of them are sort of brownish, reddish. Some of them are yellowish, blackish. They're about the size of a blackbird. Uh, some of them are a bit smaller. Some of them are slightly larger. So sort of what we'd call a medium-sized bird. And then roughly some 15 million years ago, they dispersed across from that Austral Papuan region across to continental Asia. And so there are quite a few species on the Indonesian islands. and then some that have colonized Asia and then continued on to Africa and Europe. And generally, coming from Europe, you would know orioles are sort of these yellow and black birds that have a very nice song. Uh, vocalization is quite beautiful. You don't see them very often. They tend to hide in the, in the high up in the canopy. But then we have this group of four species. Instead of being yellow and black, they're red and black. And, and they uh, originated some 10 million years ago and occur only in that the Southeast Asian region and also on Borneo and Java and Sumatra. But the group that we're looking at are from continental Southeast Asia, uh, so Thailand, China, uh, Laos, uh, Vietnam. And basically, they've, they've been described as one species with five different subspecies. But now, in recent years, the silver oriole, which we're particularly interested in, has been considered a species on its own. So what we call a monotypic species, it doesn't have any uh, subspecies or subpopulations. It's just one species that all look relatively similar. So instead of being brownish, reddish and black, it, it's, it has this silvery white color. And that's what's given it its name. And I think what is particularly interesting about it is really figuring out what is going on in terms of the subspecies and species boundaries within this group. Uh, obviously, as Mario was saying before, it, it matters quite a bit whether they're considered species or subspecies for conservation purposes. Usually, conservationists are after protecting species and less interested in protecting subspecies, although that is getting increasing attention. Yeah, so that's sort of where we are in terms of geography and origin of old world orioles. Mm, fantastic. They are very interesting little birds. And was the aim of this study really to try and firm up those species boundaries? So there's sort of two main things in it. There's sort of the biological point of view, figuring out the biological taxonomic point of view, figuring out, are we getting the, the evolutionary story right here? So in the past, taxonomists would compare the birds, they would look at them, the plumage, uh, the anatomy, the morphology, and they would try and and sort of piece together who's most closely related to whom and where should we draw the line in terms of whether their species are not thinking mostly about do they breed with other things or not. So the, the old biological species concept, if you're offspring or if you get hybrids that are not fertile or that can't produce offspring themselves, we consider them species. So there's that taxonomic thing finding out did they get it right? 
But of course, it's also of value finding out, are they conservation entities? And then I think also we're, we're looking at how far can we take museomics? How far can we get? I mean, in the past, we've been pulling out single genes or small gene fragments. But can we actually get millions of base pairs out of these study skins? So, so there's both the technical methodological side of things and then the, the real biology side of things and the conservation issue on top of that. Yeah, fascinating. And I think that's a really good segue into what you actually did in the study. Because Mario, as you were saying, using these museum samples presents quite a lot of technical challenges, and it's not the easiest samples to use at times. So how did you actually go about conducting this study? In our case, we wanted to use whole genome sequencing. Basically, when you work with museum samples, usually the DNA, it's quite fragmented, right? So you have a, a very short sequencing reads that you're working with. Therefore, what you need is a reference genome that you can use as a backbone to which you can compare your, your reads. And in our case, one approach that we took is that we first constructed a reference genome. And we did so by using a high-quality blood sample from relatively closely related oriole species, which is the black-hooded oriole. And so with this reference in place, we're able to figure out where our short reads come from, right? And by doing that, we're able to then get this whole genome data set and use different approaches to look at the species relationships. Then we also looked at population structure and we used different approaches in order to see how the populations are connected, whether they are exchanging genes or not. And of course, like before we were doing all these uh, secondary bioinformatic analysis, we had to be really cautious about how we clean our data. We used different settings, right, to filter our data and to be really sure that what we're seeing are truly alleles and that it's truly like genetic variation and not uh, maybe uh, some degradation that has, has happened or some mutations that have arised after specimens were collected and so on. Yeah, so there's many considerations. Uh, in a nutshell, what we did is we used a reference genome, a high-quality genome assembly, which we used to guide our analysis. And then we also employed uh, a lot of bioinformatic tools to be able to filter out all this noise that was generated due to DNA degradation. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating method. And um, I know it's really advanced a lot in recent years as well. And I'm really curious as to what you were able to discover using these museum samples. So what were some of your key findings? So basically, there was this previous study, right, by, which was led by Knud, and he found that there were indications that maybe the silver oriole is nested within the maroon orioles, which is, of course, not something we would expect because they, as he said, they look very, very different in terms of coloration. And there were several hypotheses that could explain this. One potential hypothesis that is that this topology actually reflects the true species history, right? So maybe the silver orioles and some maroon orioles indeed share recent common ancestry. But another option which would have been also possible is that maybe what we're seeing is a result of hybridization. So in that case, the silver orioles and some maroon orioles may be genetically very, very similar, not because they share recent common ancestry, but because they have been interbreeding. So they have been exchanging genes. And one of our key findings is that we found strong support for the first scenario. So we saw that there's a genome-wide signal that supports a close uh, relationship between the silver oriole and the continental maroon oriole subspecies. This means that the silver oriole has indeed evolved out of a maroon oriole population and then has rapidly shifted in terms of coloration. So that's basically our key finding, right? As I said, we also wanted to have a look at population structure in particular because we wanted to see if there's any mixed signals. We want to see if maybe there's still gene exchange going on. And what we found is actually that 
each individual clearly groups with its respective taxon. So there's no admixture, at least that we can see nowadays. Additionally, we also looked at signatures of past hybridization, and indeed, we were able to find some. We saw that it seems like the well, the silver and the moon forms continue to interbreed after they initially diverged. But as I said, our population structure results, they show that nowadays this gene exchange has ceased. Mm, fascinating. And I guess one of the big things you were mentioning earlier as well was also this sort of conservation motivation. So how did these results feed into the conservation of Asian Orioles? How might it change what we're doing right now? So, I mean, ideally, we would like to conserve all of biodiversity, right? But obviously, uh, resources are limited, and therefore, managers uh, are often uh, faced with difficult decisions as to how to allocate the resources. And as Knud already said, legislation often considers species as the baseline taxonomic unit for conservation. Therefore, a lot of extinction risk assessments or management decisions are taken at the species level. And in our study, we not only confirm that the silver oriole should still be considered as a separate species, but we also show that the current taxonomy is actually masking the underlying genetic diversity within the maroon orioles. And therefore, we suggest that several maroon oriole subspecies should be upgraded to a species status. And we think that this may mean that the current conservation schemes have to be reevaluated because the current prioritization uh, schemes are based on the old taxonomy, right? And this is based on morphology, but it should also consider genetic variation. So we think that in, if indeed some of the subspecies are upgraded, this could lead to uh, increased resource allocation for its protection. I think there's also some, some direct uh, aspects. So, for example, it has become increasingly or an increasingly important way of preserving species that you reintroduce or you bring in individuals from other places to sort of help a struggling population. And when you do that, you want to be really, really sure that you're mixing the right things, that you're not diluting populations. So one of the findings in here is also that some of the island populations of maroon oriole in Taiwan and Hainan they're really very different from the maroon orioles in continental Asia. So say, for example, it's hypothetical somehow, but say that one of those populations was struggling to survive and you decided, well, we're just going to move some individuals from continental Asia out to those islands. You'd actually cause more damage to those populations by mixing them with some individuals that are very different from the island uh, individuals. And, and just to, um, you probably said that already, Mario, but I just want to make it very clear that the silver oriole is a relatively small population, has a relatively small population in a relatively narrow breeding range and wintering range. The breeding ground is in China and the, the wintering ground is in Thailand. And what we really established is that it is a separate entity in there. So you might sometimes get you know, individuals that are mixing and sometimes you get, you know, sometimes you get one that's white and sometimes you get one that's red. It's, it's kind of random. It's just like could be very few genes flipping back and forth. So we have long tail tits in Europe and they come in two different forms, but they're quite similar uh, genetically. And what we've really established here is that the silver oriole is not just one of those cases, it's really its own evolutionary entity. All the individuals are most closely related to each other. So it is worth preserving that evolutionary entity, considering its uh, species. So that's very important for conservation. Mm, definitely. I think it's really interesting seeing 
how much information you've been able to extract from these museum samples about the sort of diversity of this group of birds. And I guess one thing that it makes me think is that obviously there are a lot of museums out there with an awful lot of samples. So what do you both think is the kind of key message in this paper? What does it tell us about the value of museum samples? No, I think I think it's a very, very important message. Uh, so I'm based at the Natural History Museum in Copenhagen. We have about 110,000 bird specimens in our collections. You know, some of these were collected 100, 150, 200 years ago without knowing about DNA. So they were collected, put in there for morphological and anatomical analysis, and now we can get DNA and not just single genes, but whole genomes out of these samples. And that's very important to think about at a time when I think natural history museums in general are somewhat struggling. There's not a lot of money for looking after the collections. There's not a lot of money for going out and collecting new material. So this is an important message that sometimes things or specimens are collected without really knowing what they can be used for in the future. Then, of course, it's also an important message that there is all the, these data sitting around. And that means, you know, for rare species, for endangered species, or even if you want to look at what happened to a population over time, over 100 or 200 years, if a population crashed, that would leave a signature in the DNA. And you can only find that out if you have time series of specimens. So, this is really an, an important message, how important museum collections are. And we have a relatively large collection of birds in Copenhagen, but there are museums with many more specimens than that. The British Museum, the American Museum, they have a million bird specimens. That's an enormous resource for this work. But I want to emphasize as well that it's also important to keep doing field work and to keep updating these samples. And we really need to look after the museum collections we have. I mean, we saw the museum in Brazil that burned. And that's a loss of specimens and type specimens, specimens that were used for describing species. And it's all gone. And I think that what our study shows is so basically for us, it would have been probably nearly impossible to do this study if it wasn't for historical samples, because uh, as we said, the silver oriole is endangered. And so what often happens with uh, endangered species, of course, is that their population sizes are small, so they're rare, they're frequently elusive as well. And on top of that, they are frequently also vulnerable to human impact. So Getting a representative number of samples is not only difficult for logistical reasons, but also poses ethical challenges as well. And so I think what our study shows is that particularly for these kind of studies where you're looking at threatened populations or where it's tricky in general to get samples in the field, museum collections are a very, very valuable source, which is starting to be yeah, just available for genomic research. Yeah, and I think that as we face the increasing effects of climate change and habitat loss and so on, they will only become more and more important because, of course, it will become more and more difficult to collect samples of the species that are being more and more threatened. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I completely agree. And I love how much this paper displays just how valuable a resource museum collections are and just how fantastic they are for doing contemporary biological studies um, and hopefully people will go and give your paper a read and they will be inspired by it. So just to finish up, I wonder if you could just remind us what your paper is called and also tell us about anyone else who is kind of critical in bringing us this research. Uh, all right. Uh, the title of the, of the paper is Utilizing Museomics to Trace the Complex History and Species Boundaries in an Avian Study System of Conservation Concern. Uh, the authors are 
well, you, Mario Ernst, myself, Knut Johnson, Per Eriksson from Stockholm, Moses Blum from Berlin, and Martin Iristet from Stockholm as well, from the Nat- Swedish Museum of Natural History. And I would like to also uh, mention, uh, as I did before, that uh, all these big, the massive museum collections worldwide have supported this study by loaning out uh, samples for us. So what we do is, is we go into the museum collections, we find the bird we want to sample, and we slice off a tiny bit of what we call the toe pad. So just underneath one of the toes, we slice that off, and that is what we actually bring to the lab. Obviously, that is destructive sampling of uh, museum specimens. So we're very, very pleased that these museum curators worldwide done the sampling and given us these samples for this study. So we're very, very grateful to these museums. Also, I would like to personally thank Carolina Diaz, who did a fantastic job in designing the figures and also in particular drawing the bird illustrations, which look fantastic. So, yeah. Mm, yeah, they, they definitely do. And of course, people have to go and read the paper in order to see them. But yeah, excellent. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining me on the podcast and sharing this research. Thanks to Mario and Knut. You can find their paper on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.